Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing great. Absolutely having a blast. We went to a Christmas uh, a, a yacht a Christmas yacht light parade last night with uh, Garrett and his wife. <laughs> and it was just awesome. Awesome. I'm having a blast here in uh, beautiful Dunedin, Florida, soaking up the Florida sun, enjoying the weather. It's great. That is the most uh, Eric Bischoff comment ever. I went to a yacht parade. What? Yeah, I never heard of such a thing, but here in Dunedin, you know, we're real close to the water. And there's a nice little bay and marina in downtown Dunedin. And I guess every year, everybody dresses up their, when I say yachts, I mean, you know, big sailboats. And some of them were yachts and some of them were small little boats. But they decorate them with Christmas lights and all kinds of other things. And then they have this parade through downtown. And it's really a a great excuse to have a cocktail on the beach. But somebody we don't hate. One of the most beloved figures in the history of professional wrestling is the subject of today's 83 weeks. Of course, we're talking about Ray Mysterio Jr. And we're talking about him now because he's about to have a big birthday. He was born on December 11th, 1974. So this Wednesday, be sure to send a little happy birthday message to our great close personal friend of the show, Ray Mysterio. He made his wrestling debut back in Mexico in uh, 1989. He's only 14 years old. Of course, he's trained by his uncle, Ray Mysterio Sr. And uh, a lot of our longtime fans may remember that Ray Mysterio Sr. was actually part of Starcade 1990, teamed with Conan, representing the country of Mexico in the Pat O'Connor Memorial uh, Tag Team Tournament that they were doing. But I think uh, he probably came on your radar, and I think we've touched on this fairly recently, uh, around the same time of, of When Worlds Collide, the show that got your attention prior to that. And then of course he became a megastar at when worlds collide and he was on your radar in a major way. Do I have that timeline, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it really coincided with some of the thoughts I was having at the time of trying to, you know, broaden the international, you know, the perception that that WCW was more than just a, a domestic U S product that we were really a worldwide brand. So it all kind of dovetailed together really, um, nicely. What's amazing about Ray too, and I really want to encourage some of our younger listeners who only know Ray from his WWE work, man, you've got to go see early Ray Mysterio because, and to put it in context, no one was doing the crazy stuff that he was doing just a few years prior to Ray coming into sort of the national scene, Scott Steiner had innovated the Frankensteiner and you know, the hurricane Rana with a pinning combination and off the top rope and so many crazy things that Ray was doing at the time were just never seen before. And the other really unique piece of Ray is not just the incredible moves that he could pull off the high flying stuff, but he was, he looked a lot different than everyone else in wrestling at the time. Um, depending on who you believe he's somewhere between five foot three and five foot six. 
and around 130 pounds. And this is very much in the era of the giants. You know, when, when he first pops up in ECW, uh, he has a, a tremendous match with Juventud Guerrera. And we would also see psychosis there. And I mean, they became part of an, an underground tape trading community where even if you didn't get ECW TV, you had to see these matches that people were talking about at the same time, the main event of a WCW show would have been like, you know, the giant and Hulk Hogan, uh, and on a WWF show, you know, they would have been looking at guys like, like Sid vicious or Vader or, and sure. Shawn Michaels was coming into his own and Bret Hart was obviously a top guy, but it's very much about the monsters of diesel and these larger than life characters. And Ray was really a breath of fresh air and probably inspired a lot of wrestlers that we see on regular weekly TV today. Would you agree with that, Eric? Absolutely agree with that. You know, I I think you and I have touched on this before. Um, I think, and as you pointed out, rightfully so, you know, Paul Heyman over at um, ECW back in the day, you know, first introduced them to them, meaning the luchadors, uh, to the ECW audience. But that was a, that was a very, very small platform. Most people around the United States had never heard of ECW or couldn't get ECW, although it was obviously had a very, you know, a stronghold in the, on the East Coast in particular. But it was still very much an, an underground, almost an independent, not almost, an independent type organization. I think when the Luchadors, subsequent to ECW, obviously, and after, you know, I got a good look at it. A lot of the luchadors, not only Ray, but others, including Chris Jericho, not necessarily a luchador, but still uh, one of the key components of the cruiserweight division. I think Ray Mysterio, Juventud Guerrero, Psychosis, uh, that that group of people that came into WCW on our platform, a much broader national, international platform, quite frankly, um, I think that that influenced much of what we're currently seeing today. It, it was a completely different style that all of a sudden was in the mainstream as a part of WCW in the Cruiserweight division. And I think that that style, that presentation, the fast-paced athleticism, and in Ray's case, the colorful character that he really was and still is, um, changed the way people looked at the art form. And I think it had a... A, a significant impact on the product that we're watching today. Ray comes to WCW and actually makes his debut at the great American bash 1996. He's going to challenge Dean Malenko for the cruiserweight title. It's pretty unique for someone to make their debut in a company on a pay-per-view and challenging for the title. Talk to me a little bit about how, you know, he came in or is this a recommendation? I mean, had you heard about him before you saw him? Uh, or is it one of those deals where, you know, Kevin Sullivan maybe was watching ECW TV or, you know, maybe Terry Taylor or someone of that ilk was watching, you know, tapes from, from AAA or, you know, somewhere, some Mexican promotion and says, man, you gotta see this. Or do you see him in real life for the first time and think, God damn, I gotta have this guy. I, there very well may have been some conversation either with, you know, a, more than likely it would be Kevin Sullivan because Kevin really did have his eye on the ECW product. So I would, if I was going to bet, you know, who initially brought Ray's name up, it would, it would likely have been Kevin Sullivan. I, I can't say that for, for certain, but, um, I had gotten wind of who Ray Mysterio was and certainly, uh, someone probably Kevin, possibly Terry Taylor, 
put Ray on my radar so that when I got to when worlds collide and was able to see him, I was kind of already looking out for him. But once I saw him, there was no question in my mind that he had to be a part of WCW. Yeah. And, and you're going to, you know, put him in a prom spot. And, um, I don't think that you've maybe recently in the last few years gotten your just due for some of the innovations that you brought, uh, to American television wrestling and, and certainly the cruiserweight influence is a big part of that. And we see exactly why he was signed at this great American bash show. Uh, him and Dean Malenko are going to get 17 minutes and 50 seconds on the show. And by the way, we should mention great American bash 96. This is when the NWO is starting to really pick up some steam. This is where we'll famously see you take the big uh, power bomb from, from Kevin Nash. Uh, but what people are talking about when it's over, as far as a, a, a wrestling match on that show, it's the cruiserweights to the point that Meltzer would say this was the best wrestling match on the show and an excellent technical match. And he gave it four stars, such a phenomenal, um, debut here for Mysterio, but it is still, you know, sort of the old school American style wrestling business at this point. Do you, re- I mean, obviously he steals the show here, but do you remember there being any sort of pushback amongst the boys or old timers just based on Ray's stature? Not so much on his stature, uh, although there was some pushback on that, but not as much as one would think where I, I really noticed the, I don't want to call it pushback, but there was. There, there was a subtle awareness by some of the, the, the big guys, you know, Hulk Hogan being one of them, Kevin Nash being another, a couple of the other guys. It was like, and it's, you know, if you've ever been backstage, you know, it's like, oh, man, how am I going to follow that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I think everybody recognized that Ray's performances were so dynamic and so compelling um, and so different and left a strong impression on the audience. I think the general feeling is like, oh, now what do we do? How, right. you know, how do you follow that? When you raise the bar that high in terms of athleticism, it makes you know the next match or or even the main event match in some cases kind of pale in comparison from an athletic perspective because they're two different styles. And it's look, it's no different I think than watching. You know, when I watch boxing, um, which is occasionally, I, I still like the art form. Um, I prefer to watch the lightweights, the middleweights, even some of the bantamweights, because there's just more action. There's more, you know, it's faster pace. There are more punches thrown. The footwork is much more interesting for me to watch um, than perhaps a heavyweight. Now, heavyweights have their own compelling you know, nature. There's a reason you want to watch these, you know, 225, 250 pound guys in there hanging and banging. And that's, that's one type of boxing that a lot of people prefer. They prefer to watch the heavyweights. I like the smaller guys because I like the action. And I think the same thing is true in professional wrestling where you got a cruiserweight division or guys like, you know, Ray Mysterio, Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho in their psychosis, you name them guys that could really go in there and put on this athletically dynamic, match that is so different than the big guys it makes the big guys feel a little bit kind of inadequate i think and it was subtle it wasn't nobody was bitching and moaning and burying anybody or anything like that but it was a a a a definite acknowledgement 
that there was a, a new style or a presentation of professional wrestling and the need, I think, or the, the feeling that a lot of guys had to figure out how to follow that. Yeah, I would think if I was on the undercard of this show, like if I was like Ice Train or, or John Tenta, I would I'd start filling out a resume. Uh, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess we should mention, even though he does debut here on pay-per-view, he loses. Malenko is going to retain. Was there ever any, I mean, obviously debuting on a pay-per-view and challenging for the title, it's a little different. It's, it's a big way to splash. In hindsight, would it have been cool for him to win the belt since you knew what a special performer you had at the time? Or was really that wins and losses, especially in the undercard, not as paramount in your mind, knowing what you're doing with the NWO? Um, to answer your first question first, uh, I think in hindsight or retrospect, sure, I would have loved to, to make Ray's debut even bigger by surprising the audience and doing something a little out of, a little more out of the box um, and, and, and have Ray win that one. If I had to do that all over again, knowing what I know now, um, sure, I think that would have been a, 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 great, a great way to enhance Ray's presence even more. But at the same time, you know, a wrestling audience, at that time at least, wrestling audiences um, – didn't always appreciate somebody just coming in and winning the title right off the bat. Um, it, 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 it feels like a cheap, easy way out. And sometimes I think it raises a red flag that you're trying to push a talent too hard. And that might've been one of the reasons we didn't do that. I, I can't really tell you for, for sure, but in hindsight, yeah, it would have been great. It would have just further enhanced his, uh, his perception amongst the audience. They're going to do a rematch the next night on nitro Malenko wins again, but it does give you a real chance to show, show him on the big stage uh, of nitro much bigger audience there than compared to pay-per-view. Now the next pay-per-view is bash at the beach. And here there's going to be a number one contendership match for the cruiserweight title. And we're going to see a match that we've seen before. Uh, including where I first saw it, ECW. Ray Mysterio is going to get a win over Psychosis, and you give him plenty of time, 15 minutes and 18 seconds. Uh, such an unbelievable match. I feel like we're just, this is going to be a mutual admiration society here for Ray Mysterio today because I know you feel the same way that I do. But Meltzer, uh, same thing, four and three-quarter stars. Every time Ray Mysterio went through the curtain in 1996, he stole the show. This was no exception. Really was, and you know, you touched on this earlier when we first started this podcast. You know, many fans around the world know Ray only because of WWE. But if you go back and you look at, you know, Ray during uh, some of his matches in ECW, uh, the one in specific that you talked about with Psychosis, uh, and then look at Ray in WCW the first couple of years, I think you'll find really one of the most athletic, dynamic, charismatic performers probably in the last 25 or 30 years. Um, nobody did it better than Ray. And I think it was the peak of Ray's career. And I'm not taking anything away from Ray and what he's accomplished post, you know, WCW. But, but because obviously he became a bigger star on a bigger platform in WWE. But I think in terms of his ring work, I think the peak of his career inside of the ring athletically now 
really occurred during this period of time in WCW, in early ECW. And if you want to go back and you want to see what Ray looked like when he was at that peak, go back and check out some of those tapes. And I think a large, a lot of it had to do with his size. You know, Ray, when Ray was in WCW, he might have weighed 140 pounds, maybe. 145 tops with rocks in his pockets. Um, but as he, you know, got older, as often happens as you get older, you mature. Um, because Ray came into WCW very young. But as he started to mature and he, he changed his workout regimen and he wanted to get bigger. He, he didn't want to be that, you know, five foot five, 140 pound guy. He wanted to be bigger. He wanted to be able to work with bigger, bigger talents. And I understand that. But I think as he got bigger and older, um, it slowed him down. And obviously the injuries started really becoming an issue for Ray. And a lot of that just had to do with his style. But I think the fact that he got so much heavier and still worked that dynamic athletic style, that luchador style, uh, I think that had some effect on him and slowed him down. And as a result, I think uh, he didn't have some of his best matches as he got heavier. It's worth mentioning too, you know, the forever and ever, at least in my experience, the older generation of wrestling has always said, oh, you got to slow it down. Oh, you're going too fast. Oh, you're doing too much. You're going to end your career early. You're taking too many risks. You're shortening your career. Less is more. I mean, that that's always been sort of the nature of the beast in professional wrestling. And I assume that, you know, people are probably saying the same thing to Ray when he's setting the world on fire here and flying all over the place. Well, again, I think some of that goes back to the concern that a lot of bigger, older, more established talent had that his stuff was just too hard to follow. And he was giving the audience too much. It's, it's like going to a movie and having the best scene in the movie take place in the first 20 or 25 minutes and have everything else kind of slow down after that. Right. It's, it's tough, you know, again, when you're the 10th match or the main event and you had a guy like Ray Mysterio, Dean Malenko or Psychosis or Chris Jericho or, you know, name any of the above go out and have a 15 or 20 minute match. That's basically, you know, a whole new level of art form. It's tough. And you'll have some of those bigger, more established guys kind of, Hey buddy, you need to slow that down partly because they are legitimately concerned. And, you know, look, they're right. A lot of these guys that, that had that, uh, those really high flying, you know, types of matches and high risk types of matches ended up getting hurt early in their careers and busted up. Um, but I think a lot of it was also due to the fact that you know, a lot of guys just didn't want to follow that shit. Yeah, no doubt. I, I, I guess I didn't really even consider that, but let's keep it moving here. Uh, the very next night after beating psychosis to win the right to be the number one contender, he gets his title shot against Dean Malenko and on nitro the day after he wins the cruiserweight title. Um, Let's fast forward though, to the end of the month. It's one of the most famous scenes during the Monday night war. You still hear people talk about it to this day. Hall and Nash are going to attack several WCW wrestlers backstage at the Disney lot. This of course is happening live on nitro. And one of these young wrestlers is a young Ray Mysterio. He comes out of a trailer and is attempting to do a, a flying cross body at Kevin Nash, who instead catches him, spins him around and throws him head first into the trailer. Of course, uh, people have referred to this as the lawn dart spot. This is really innovative and something people still talk about. You and I have talked about this attack a lot, but 
whose idea was it to involve Ray in this particular spot with uh, sort of a modern day Dave and Goliath? Well, that was, uh, you know, more than likely Kevin Sullivan uh, had his fingerprints all over that. Um, I'm sure Kevin Nash and Scott were instrumental in developing that backstage scene as well. Probably Terry Taylor to a large degree. It was not one person. Uh, everybody had input in that, but it was an amazing, it was an amazing moment. And it, I think a lot of things were taking place in that scene. Number one, and keep in mind, and I know I've told the story before, so I'm not going to belabor it too much here, but to keep kind of everything in context, we were, this was 1996. And if you remember, the Olympics were taking place in Atlanta in 1996 and every, every freelance production person in the country that did sports um, was wrapped up with the Olympics. And we had very little uh, of our crew. Our TBS crew was all snatched from us and assigned over to the Olympics. So we, we had to go to Disney MGM studios because we just couldn't find a crew there. And at Disney, there was a, they were self-contained in terms of television production. A lot of what we would have had to hire from a freelance perspective was available through Disney. Um, so that's why we ended up at Disney. But what one of the things that really um, I remember about that whole scene is not only was it a it was so believable, and again we were we were peeling back the onion so to speak or exposing the audience to the backstage area in a way that had never been done before. People had not seen that kind of a uh, an attack and that kind of violence and storyline being played out outside of the ring you know you'd normally you know occasionally you'd get some vignettes and things would happen away from the arena but for the most part the action started in the ring in the venue and then spilled its way into that backstage area where up till this point the audience had not really seen what goes on behind the curtain they weren't really exposed to it too often this scene was so believable that shortly after nitro went off the air Again, I've told this story. I'm going to keep it short. But, you know, we're hearing sirens. You know, I thought, oh, my gosh, somebody you know, at the park had a heart attack or, you know, fell off a ride or whatever, died of heat stroke, something. So I'm hearing these ambulances, and all of a sudden cop cars are showing up, and they're, they're pulling up to the backstage area or the, the, the production area of, of our set and asking if everybody's all right. And, you know, everybody's nervous. And I'm thinking, what in the hell? Well, as it turned out, some of the residents around the park in Orlando who were watching Nitro live thought that that scene was so real, they called the cops. They really thought that there was a, a, an attack taking place behind the scene and it was completely out of control and people called 911. It was so awesome. And I think that the reality of that moment, when you can, when you can trigger people or <laughs> engage the audience to that extent and make them believe that what they're seeing is real and create that real kind of emotion. In this case, it was panic that would have, I guess, inspired someone to call 911. But when you can create something that that's that real and believable where the people at home forget that they're watching a scripted athletic performance and believe that what they're seeing is real, you've completely changed the game. I know we've talked about it. I know other people talk about it. 
and I think people try, you know, people aspire to achieve that level of be- believability. I'm talking about writers and producers and, you know, talent themselves. Everybody aspires to it. But it's very rare when you can create a moment that's so believable that the audience actually calls 911 to get some help over to the talent. It's really crazy. It really is, especially when, you know, the attention to detail for the realism, like even when he's getting medical attention, they're taking his mask off, but he's covering his face as they do it. It just feels real. And, you know, even if you know what you're doing, being thrown towards this trailer, you know, you're no longer in control anymore. You're midair and then you're going to quote unquote, take a bump on concrete. This is, uh, but still people are talking about it to this day. So if they wanted our attention, they got it. And they got our attention at the next pay-per-view. It's Ultimo Dragon and Rey Mysterio. Uh, once again, for the Cruiserweight title, Rey's going to win here three and three-quarter stars. They do a rematch the next night on Nitro with Rey. Once again, Rey wins that. Starting to see a trend, though, whether it's Hooventude or it's Psychosis or it's Dean Malenko or it's Ultimo Dragon, it's consistently good stuff. And we get more of that at Clash of the Champions a few days later. Uh, this is live on TBS, August 15th. It's Ray Mysterio defending against Dean Malenko, three and three quarter stars. And something that's worth mentioning is you guys are not holding Ray Mysterio sort of to some sort of WCW exclusivity. He had an opportunity to wrestle for war over in Japan in July. Uh, and then, you know, here in August, you're giving him a chance to wrestle for AAA at Mexico. What was the relationship like with war and triple a, we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about those promotions. I didn't really have, I didn't have any relationship with war in Japan. Um, I'm not sure if Ray had a previous commitment before coming into WCW or if I just allowed him to do it. Um, I, you know, I, that one escapes me. I don't remember that situation at all. Triple a, however, was a little bit different. I was, you know, really trying to develop a, a solid relationship with Antonio Pena at, at AAA. So I was um, I was very supportive of some of our talent crossing back and forth. Number one, because I wanted access to a deeper talent pool, and AAA had that. They were a great resource for it. Uh, and the other was, again, uh, my ultimate goal with bringing in the luchadors and bringing in a lot of the guys that I did from Japan was to create this bigger, broader brand, you know, of WCW as being an international brand and not a domestic one, as I've said many times and having our talent competing outside of the United States in non WCW events was at that time early on in my mind, a great way to help achieve that so that we weren't just again, we weren't just a domestic U.S. company. We were an international company. So part of my part of my reason for supporting, you know, AAA was again to develop a deeper, um, more solid promotional platform and partnership. And two, because I wanted our talent to be exposed internationally. Can't recommend uh, this era Ray Mysterio stuff enough. And the fall brawl pay per view really proves to me that he can do it with anybody. And I don't mean to disparage Super Callow. But once again, Ray's allotted enough time, 15 minutes, 47 seconds. It's the, it's another match of the night, four stars here and super Callow is a name that we haven't heard about a ton here on the show. Uh, a lot of our fans will remember. He was the performer who had very interesting ring gear and most famously his sunglasses, uh, made in to be part of his mask. 
any, any, I know I'm going way off the beaten path here, but can you tell us anything about super Calo at all? I really can't, you know, like a lot of the luchadors that came in from Mexico, I, some of them spoke English, um, a couple of them, I should say, and, and many of them didn't. And since I don't speak Spanish, uh, communication or chatting or just any kind of a back and forth backstage often didn't happen with, with a number of the luchadors that came in. Some of them, like Ray, obviously I could, you know, speak with on a regular basis and Ray's probably, uh, more fluent in English than I am at, at times, but, uh, but a lot of the guys know, I never really got to know them. The, um, the, the hits will keep coming the next night. It's Ray and Hooventude on nitro. And we should mention that, uh, things are, while things are rolling here for Ray and WCW, it looks like there's a little bit of turmoil in Mexico in October, Ray and several other wrestlers would leave AAA, And it's a big story there. It's covered in the newspapers and by the Mexican Associated Press. Of course, it's all over the Observer as well. Conan was really the um, sort of the gateway for a lot of the 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 pipeline of talent to to make their way from Mexico into WCW. Do I have that right? Absolutely right. You know, and that, that created it created a lot of opportunity, and I think Conan deserves a lot of credit for helping to bring a lot of the luchadors into WCW and give them the opportunity that they had and expose the luchador style to, to a bigger audience. But, you know, look, Conan and I are tight now. I do a show on a regular basis. Uh, we're, we're, we're pretty good friends, I would say. But I'm not going to lie. You know, Conan was a political animal, and he was smart. You know, he's intellectually, you know, Intel, you know, smart, and he's also street smart. Um, and he took advantage of the opportunity that he was in. And to some degree, I think he was, I don't want to say double dealing, but he was he was making sure that he was in a good position. Let's just put it that way. And I think he was leveraging Conan. I think Conan was probably leveraging his position and relationship with me in WCW to enhance his situation over in Mexico and vice versa. Um and it, it, it got a little messy. It got a little tough at times because of the politics and the maneuvering and all that. But, you know, at the end of it all, it, it panned out for everybody, especially a guy like Ray Mysterio. Well, behind the scenes, uh, I guess, uh, Pena is going to take the Tijuana promotion away from Conan and that tries to, uh, put Ray Mysterio in the middle and, um, I don't know. We'll talk about Mexican politics on the show, or maybe another time. Let's stick to uh, to Ray here. Halloween Havoc, another barn burner, October seventeenth. This time he and Dean Malenko. This is really the first time I got to see one of Ray's pay per view matches live instead of on tape. This is when I'm really getting back into wrestling, and this match made such an incredible, um, I don't know, impression on me. I guess Malenko is. Um, going to use a, a, a doctor bomb off the middle ropes for the finish here, but seeing, you know, the springboard hurricane Rana's turned into power bombs and there's so many great pinning combinations and you give them plenty of time here, 18 minutes, 32 seconds, four and a quarter stars. Dean Malenko is going to recapture the cruiserweight title. So after Ray has been on quite the winning streak, we give the nod to the ice band here. Phenomenal match in this era. Was there, um, you know, we know there's, there's not historically been a bunch of timing issues that fans are familiar with with the exception of Halloween Havoc 98, 
But when a match goes on early like this, and it is the quote unquote smaller guys, and they've got 18 minutes, is anybody barking that maybe that's too much time on a big show like this, or do the results sort of speak for themselves? I would think it would be the latter. Look, everybody, especially on a pay-per-view, I've never met anybody yet that wanted less time in a match because it's the nature of the performers. You know, they are they are performers. They're talent. They want to showcase what they do best, and they want all the time they can get to do it. Um, but at the same time, I think by the by this point in time that you're referring to here and we're covering – uh, most of the people backstage understood what we were trying to achieve with the cruiserweight division, understood that we had to present a more diverse uh, product in terms of its presentation and style. And everybody kind of understood that, okay, the, the, you know, the, the cruiserweights are our car crash division. That's Those are the matches that we have, and yes, they're longer in many cases than, than a, a traditional match, um, but we're, we're presenting a product that's different than the rest of the card. And by this point, I think everybody was pretty comfortable with it, but you, yeah, you're always, I'm, like I said, I've never met anybody yet. You could go to somebody and say, look, you've got, you can go to somebody in a main event that normally gets 12 or 15 minutes for a match and say, okay, you're going to get 20 tonight. And the first response you're going to get is, man, I could really use 25 or 30. You know what I mean? They always want more camera time, but that's the nature of talent. Let's get to, um, you know, the discussion of taking the belt off of Ray, you know, it feels like since he's come onto the scene, you've sort of made him the face, the division. Now you're going to put the belt back on Malenko is, are you just building towards a feud, just natural storytelling? I mean, it felt like for a minute after him being on such a hot streak, Hey, he might be like your Lucha Libre Hulk Hogan here. Yeah. But again, keep in mind, we didn't have a, the depth of talent in the cruiserweight division that I would like to have had. I mean, we had a pretty good, we had a pretty good pool of talent, but in terms of top guys, I don't mean athletically or in terms of what their capabilities were in the ring, but a lot of the luchadors uh, couldn't really cut promos and that hurt them in terms of becoming a star. So you're, although we had a reasonably deep roster in the cruiserweight division, the number of people that you could really tell stories with was somewhat limited. And I think the idea of taking the belt off Ray and making him fight for it, you know, and, and making it kind of an aspirational storyline because you we wanted the audience to to want their hero, in this case, Ray Mysterio, to fight, get that belt back, probably had more value than trying to position Ray as a cruiserweight Hulk Hogan, so to speak, uh, and having all the heels, you know, trying to tear him apart and get the belt off of him. So... It was more a storytelling preference. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I typically believe that, you know, heels, for the most part, not always, but heels are more effective with a belt, with, you know, powerful baby faces, popular baby faces chasing them, than having a baby face with the belt and the heels trying to get it. Just just my my preference. Well, we see, uh, the belt change hands here, of course, at uh, Halloween havoc. And that sets up an interesting match at world war three. We would see Ultimo dragon take on Rey Mysterio, which is a rematch from an earlier pay-per-view. They get four and a half stars here. It takes them 13 minutes and 48 seconds, but this is interesting. And we haven't spent a lot of time talking about this. 
But Ultimo Dragon is defending the J Crown here, which is the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title, the NWA Junior Heavyweight and Welterweight titles, the UWA Light Heavyweight title, the War International Junior Heavyweight title, the WWF, that's right, WWF Light Heavyweight title, the Great Britain Junior Heavyweight title, and the WWA Junior Light Heavyweight titles. Of course, none of the belts are mentioned by, by name in the U.S., simply that Ultimo Dragon has eight belts that he won in Japan. A very cool presentation when he comes out just draped with belt after belt after belt. Probably a bitch to lug around internationally. I was going to say, how did he get to the airport with all that? Yeah, that's it's a TSA sellout these days if you try to do that. Talk to me about the decision to allow the J crowd and all these belts on TV. Is this Sonny Ono's influence selling you on the cool visual? Do you think it's a cool feather in the cap to have the WWF light heavyweight title? Uh, what, what can you tell us about the J crowd? Uh, it, it really was again, just another way to establish that WCW was a worldwide brand. And by exposing these titles and particularly Ultimo Dragon and Ultimo's and we, you and I covered this match uh, in, a, in a podcast we did, I think, a couple of weeks ago. We broke this match down and, with Ultimo Dragon and and Rey Mysterio. An amazing match because this was a match where Ray kind of had sh- to shift gears a little bit and work more of a Japanese style than a strictly lucha style. And one of the things that made this particular match so much fun to watch is uh, Ultimo Dragon worked a lot in Mexico, obviously he was Japanese and worked a lot in Japan, but, uh, both of these performers had the ability to kind of shift gears and adapt a different style of match, still delivering on a lot of the high flying stuff and the aerial stuff. And I think in this match in particular, if you go back and watch it, you know, if you're going to throw a kick in professional wrestling, sports entertainment, whatever you want to do. If you want your kicks to kind of represent something that look believable, go back and watch Ultimo Dragon in this particular match because his the, the, the kicking part of his match, uh, his offense was so stunningly believable, accurate, fast, uh, just crisp and, and, and fluid that I, I think this match, of all the great Rey Mysterio matches, this one almost impressed me the most just because Ray was able to shift gears a little bit and have more of a Japanese style. It was a, a very good match, no exception. Uh, this one that we recently covered, though, four and a half stars. You know, let's talk about the, the politics of something like this. When you have Ultimo Dragon come in with, with this big collage of belts, is there a, I mean, can you do whatever finish you want? Or since this involves, you know, other people's championships, what, what does that look like politically? There were no issues. Um, you know, anything that we did with regard to new Japan pro wrestling was very easy to manage because we worked with them very closely and, you know, finishes just weren't as big of an issue in real life as a lot of the writers and people covering the industry like to make it sound sometimes. Um, you know, often, you know, timing becomes an issue and, you know, when you got guys who are, you know, headlining big events in Japan and big events in the United States, you have to be aware and cognizant of, you know, the respective storylines and positioning going forward. But, you know, politically, it just never represented the kind of, you know, backstage, inner office infighting and po- politics that a lot of people like to suggest. In this particular case, there were no issues at all. 
let's uh let's keep it rolling here and um mention something that was in the observer in december Rey mysterio psychosis Juventude have all signed contracts with wcw super calo la parka viano for halloween and damien have all signed letters of intent Bischoff made a big play to get everyone signed immediately. Once he realized the WWF and AAA were in bed together, since most of the aforementioned wrestlers had contracts with AAA. So that is worth mentioning because the Royal rumble in 1997 is going to be held in San Antonio. going to be a huge Lucha uh, influence on the show. Lots of Mexican stars, including Bill Mascaris, uh, but the underneath card, the minis, all of a sudden Vince has an appetite for this. How accurate is this statement that all of a sudden you're sort of scrambling to lock everybody down? I think it was coincidental more than anything. Obviously, I have been laying the groundwork for what I was doing with the Luchadors for quite some time by this point. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that I wasn't aware that the politics were changing a little bit and I no longer had as much control over the luchadors is when i say control i mean i didn't have the same relationship with AAA that i had had in the past and was aware of that but the idea was to put the luchadors uh, the aforementioned uh, luchadors under contract early on so it wasn't as reactionary i think as uh someone may want to make it sound it was more or less happening anyway but we may have accelerated that plan a little bit because of what was going on uh, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about Starcade. Um, oh, I, I guess I should mention very briefly December 13th, Ray's back over in Japan for war. Ultimo Dragon and Ray have a rematch. Ultimo Dragon retains. I think this is actually Ray's first pinfall loss in Japan. Uh, but December, man, you guys have something really special. We've talked about, you know, the influence of New Japan. Well, how about Jushin Thunder Liger here? getting a win over Rey Mysterio, 14 minutes, 16 seconds. And Meltzer would call this the first ever meeting between the top high flyer and wrestling of the late eighties against the top high flyer of the mid nineties, really a fun match three and three quarter stars. And this is almost like a wrestling fan. Uh, oh yeah. Smart Mark dream match. Really, really fun to watch though. H- how does this one come to be? And, uh, and what do you remember about this one? Well, Jushin Liger was, uh, I would say, probably one of the top stars uh, in New Japan. Obviously not the top star, but one of the top stars in New Japan. And I loved his work. You know, I had been watching him in Japan for a long time and just loved his work. And, and again, because of the working relationship, I hate to use that term because it's so overused that it's lost its meaning in today's world. But because of the the strategic relationship that I had with New Japan, it was very easy to put these kind of matches together. And again, I think it represented the highlight of that whole cruiserweight, you know, effort during that, that period of time. It was a great match. Great match. I know it's a weird thing, but, uh, get in the weeds for us as much as you can about how a match like this is put together when you've got, you know, a, a Mexican wrestling, a Japanese uh, you've got, uh, obviously Ray was born in California, so he speaks English as well, but, and I know that you know, Chushin has been around before, but if this is a first ever meeting, it's not like they have any sort of muscle memory, like, oh, here's what we did in San Francisco. Let's just do that again. How does the language barrier? And even from an agenting process, 
how is a match like this put together? Because this is not your standard big man match where we're just going to call it in the ring. I'm sure there is some of that, but a lot of this because of the, um, the high flying nature and the high risk nature of these matches, they're going to discuss ahead of time. How's that? What, what's that look like here in, in 1996? I'm not going to suggest that I was re- really had any hand in laying out matches like this. Once, once, it, once we booked a match, the agenting of it, laying out that match, was really something that I stayed away from because it it just it wasn't my strength. It wasn't my skill set. Sometimes it's you know better to know what you're not good at than than try to be good at something. Uh, and I stayed away from that aspect of it. But, you know, again, we had Kevin Sullivan. Terry Taylor was, when Terry was on his game, he was really good uh, agenting. You had Sonny there uh, who, who could speak Japanese. But also, you know, Jushin had, had worked with many Americans in the past, uh, quite a few of them, not only here in the United States, but also in Japan. So they, they kind of had their own shorthand. And even though there was a bit of a, there was a language barrier, not a bit of, there was a language barrier there, but they were able to manage that language barrier just because, again, Ray had worked with Japanese, Jushin obviously had worked with Americans, and then you had guys like Sonny and Terry Taylor and Kevin that could kind of, Conan certainly could, you know, kind of step into that and help lay out the, the, the match and bridge whatever gaps there were from a communication point. So I don't know that we've ever talked about that. Conan was the agent for all the, uh, Lucha match for the, Lucha no, 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 no. I'm not suggesting that, but th- there were oftentimes when there were Lucha matches, uh, and Lucha talent involved, even though Ray was obviously fluent in, in, in English, yeah. born in America is fluent in English, but, uh, still you, you had Conan would step in and assist, I guess, but no, he wasn't like the agent assigned. I don't want to give that impression, but he was always there to assist. You know, was there, you know, like we hear these days, the fifth Finley is, uh, agenting a lot of the, the women's matches for WWE. And we've heard, you know, through the grapevine that, that Arn Anderson was agenting most of John Cena's matches who would have been handling most of the Lucha matches. Was there one guy who had more expertise than others? That was sort of his calling card. Probably would have been Kevin more than anybody else. Kevin working with Conan, uh, would be my guess. And again, that depended on the match. I'm sure Terry Taylor got very involved in some of those. Um, because again, Terry was a, a very active, uh, and effective agent in, in many cases. Uh, but I would say it was probably Kevin Sullivan more than anybody. On January 8th, we, uh, I guess we should mention the next night after this big meeting with Jushin Liger, Ray and Malenko go to a 10 minute draw, which is kind of fun, but fast forward a week and in a match against Chavo Guerrero. Ray's going to blow his knee out. And then Meltzer would wind up reporting uh, an update on Ray Mysterio. He went back to the doctor this past week after resting his knee. And the doctor told him he needs major surgery, which will keep him out four to six months. He's instead back working this time wearing a heavy knee brace because he's 22. And that's just how 22 year olds think it's too bad because in the past, the wrestler may have had no choice, but he's working for a company that would have paid for the surgery and paid him his contract amount while he was out. Unlike prior generations where for economic reasons, wrestlers wouldn't have been able to sit out for that kind of time. Anyway, the long-term inevitability is now starting. So I hate that we're talking like that, but in hindsight, he's probably right. This is going to be the beginning of 
um, a long series of issues that Ray is going to have with his knee. Do you remember having a conversation with him when he gets the report that he's hurt and needs surgery, but he wants to power through? Because that is a more traditional, old school way of thinking, but not one WCW required, at least not on your watch. No, we didn't require it. Look, it's always up to the talent. We we were never going to say, look, this doctor said you should probably have surgery. And if the talent were to decide, "Mm, I don't. I don't agree with that, or I don't want to have that surgery. We're not going to step in and force him to to do so. That wouldn't be appropriate either. Uh, I remember the the situation. I remember being concerned uh, long term, not just for you know the short term, three or four months, you know, following the injury, but for the long term. Because look, I've 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 got bad knees. One bad knee. I know what a knee injury does and how it limits you going forward. And I was concerned that it was going to take a lot more of a toll sooner on Ray than it actually did. Well, we know that, uh, you know, in hindsight, it might not have been the worst thing in the world, especially when we see that at the Super Brawl pay per view, you have Prince Iakea beat Ray Mysterio. Ray's going to be challenging for the TV title here. He does his best, uh, three and a quarter stars. The finish would see Steve Regal come out and pull Mysterio off the apron, smashing his face on the mat. Of course, Ikea doesn't see it and scores the, uh, the pin. The story here, uh, just to sort of catch everybody up is Prince Ikea has pulled off the miracle upset win and won the title, uh, from Lord Steven Regal and. He was certainly positioned to be the enhancement guy, at least based on presentation, but ta-da, he wins the TV title and Meltzer would say, which traditionally works great, but it fell flat here. Nobody cared about Ikea. And this was in a building where Island wrestlers have traditionally gotten over regardless of ability. I don't know, man. Prince Ikea, that's on a short list of things. I don't like about Eric Bischoff. I don't get that either. I mean. Prince Ike was a, an extremely talented guy, good-looking guy, great bodies, work rate was phenomenal. I'm just not sure why you're such a, a, a Prince Ike hater, bro. Because he fucking sucks. Oh come on, he does not. Oh, he he's the great, worst. He was a great talent. Come on. The drizzling shits would be an upgrade. Uh, <laughs> at this case, you are so harsh. It's a holiday season for Christmas. It's a Christmas season. Come on, there's Christmas jingle bells is playing in the background for crying out loud, and you're just spewing hate. No, venom. that's not true. I've been nothing but all smiles all day because I'm talking about Rey Mysterio, and then fucking Prince Ikea comes in here and stinks out the joint 20 years later all over again. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Does he owe you money? Is that the problem? I mean, what in the hell is this? I've never heard you get so aggressive about a talent than you do when you bring up Prince Ikea. Yeah. He's the, he's the WCW Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. That's it. Did you get, did, did you get beat up by a Polynesian guy when you were in high school or something? I mean, is that where this comes from? Yeah. His name was Roman reigns. It sucked. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the uncensored pay-per-view Prince Ikea again, beats Ray Mysterio. It's uh, March of 19- not once, but twice. Unbelievable. Awesome. awesome. You know what? Sometimes you've just got to deliver the unexpected. You've got to do the opposite wait, 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 of what wait, people wait. expect to happen. That's how you get people over. That's how you create must-see TV, by the way, is doing things that are completely not predictable. 
if you can if you can turn on if you can grab your remote and before you even turn it on you know everybody that you know is going to be on the car on the show because it's been promoted to fucking death and when you turn it on and you're watching it you can predict everything that you're going to see that's a boring flipping show right that's what causes people to 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 tune out i was trying to create must see tv by creating those moments that would occur and and people would look at each other and go did i just see that did that just happen and that's exactly what we were using uh, Ray Mysterio and Prince Ikea for. And to to my point, it's one of those matches that stands out to you to this day. It raises your blood pressure and pisses you off. So actually, we were pretty effective in, in doing the unexpected. Dude, the crowd, <laughs> the, the crowd is chanting boring through this one. It's a Ray Mysterio match and people are chanting boring. You're going to tell me that's Ray's fault? No, it's not Ray's fault. It's not anybody's fault. Sometimes when you do the unexpected, you get unexpected results. God, this is so much bullshit. Yeah. I can't even keep spewing it's it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> By the way, after 11 minutes and 57 seconds, the bell rings because everybody knows at 1157, that means, of course, it's a 15 minute draw. Uh, Mysterio asks for more time. Ike agrees. There's some cheering. But a lot more booze because people want this shit to be over with. A lot more booze. God, you're just so angry. It's awful. Uh, Meltzer would even say the finish made Mysterio Jr. look real bad and that he cried for more time and still couldn't beat a guy that everyone still considers a jobber. Star and a half. And by the way, here's what else Meltzer says. Um, Who gives a fuck what he says? Why are we <laughs> not to make excuses? Because as previously mentioned, the IAK underdog gimmick is totally dead. And nobody cares. And they seem to have come close to succeeding in killing Mysterio jr. By having, Oh yeah, he's almost dead. We killed his career. He's never going to accomplish anything because of this match. Oh my God. Ray Mysterio should sue Eric Bischoff and WCW for intentionally ruining a stellar career. Right. I that what we're going to say, I think Ray went on to do just fine, Dave. Come on. <sighs> the next night on nitro Ray gets a win over psychosis, but then in April, he makes some real headlines. The national Enquirer runs a piece about Ray and Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. The hot chick from friends. Uh, Meltzer would say there's absolutely nothing to that. It was just an attempt which succeeded. To get Mysterio some publicity since WCW wants to push him big time. If that's the idea, you'd think they'd figure out how to book him effectively and not use him against guys who expose his lack of size. Yeah, 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 yeah. Spoken like a true professional wrestling business person, right? Like Dave has a fucking clue. He's never booked anything. He's never promoted anything. He writes a freaking dirt sheet and a bad one at that. So who cares? Jennifer Aniston. Come on. What's wrong with Jennifer Anderson? She's hot. She's still hot. I'm not arguing that. I'm wondering where, where does this, this feels like it comes out of left field. Where does this come from? I have no idea where it came from and I'm not being a smart ass here. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny or coy. I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not even sure WCW had anything to do with that. Well, what do you think? It may have, I, I don't know, but it's not, you know, we didn't work on a regular basis with a national inquirer. You know, the only publication now we're talking, you know, mid nineties is one of the only publications out there that had more credibility than the wrestling observer. That being said, we weren't working with them on a regular basis. So I'm not sure where that came from. 
might have been true. Who knows? Well, that's the thing. Like, I, I, I don't mean to get into his personal life, but the rumor in innuendo is that Ray was uh, quite the ladies' man. And there's even been, uh, well, Jenna Jameson has written about him. So he, he's, um, Jenna Jameson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She, she got the old six one nine. He hit that. Yeah. Who's that jumping out the sky? Yeah. R E Y. Oh man. See, I learned things when I do this podcast with you. I should have known that. I'm sure the majority of people that listen to the show probably have heard that or know that I, on the other hand, was completely unaware until this very moment that little Ray Ray tagged Jenna Jemison. Jenna Jameson. Well, That's maybe awesome. Jennifer Aniston too. I'm just saying if your first name is Jen Mysterio may have hurricane rounded your ass. I, good for him, man. Oh, I'll say, I can't wait to see him. I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm I'm to give him, I'm going to give him a much belated high five. Let's talk about the spring stampede pay-per-view. Mysterio is finally going to get a win again. And this time it's against Ultimo dragon, 14 minutes, 55 seconds, four and a quarter stars. I feel like this is a broken record, but really a fantastic match. Um, we should mention that. Everything that we've talked about so far with Jennifer Aniston and Jenna Jameson is all rumor and innuendo. I wasn't there for any of it, nor was Eric. I mentioned that, uh, because wish I would have been, we want to point out that Ray is in real life, a great family man, as you know, from watching SmackDown, because around this time is when Dominic was born. He's, uh, an eight pound nine ounce baby boy. And, uh, apparently the joke in the locker room is that Ray's boy is bigger than Kevin Nash's boy. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, this, this is, is a weird of, conversation. This is weird. Well, I'm not arguing I, I, that. I'm just, I mean, saying, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sitting here picturing, okay. You know, if you, they're going <laughs> to, they're going to, they're going to lay their little kid, their newborn babies together and try to figure out which one's bigger. How does anybody know this? Or are they just speculating? Because it's rumored innuendo, or is this a fact? I don't know. Well, I think it was a fact just based on birth weights, but it was just funny amongst the boys in the locker room. I'm sure that the biggest guy in the locker room and the smallest guy in the locker room and the smallest guy had a bigger baby. So either way, who gives a shit? It's a funny little note. And Dominic, who we now see on TV on a semi-regular basis. There he is. He's born right here. Uh, let's get to uh, the Slammery pay-per-view. This is a bit of uh of a new deal for me. Mysterio is going to pin Yuji Yasuroka screwed that up. Uh, but Meltzer would say he's a fairly green wrestler from the war promotion. And you said earlier, you didn't really have a, a relationship with the war, but we would see like even, uh, I guess throughout 97, some war talent flip flopping around here in WCW. Is that a Sonny Ono deal? You know, and, and now that you see this, you, you bring up war again, I'm, I may have been mistaken earlier in the show when I said we didn't really have a, a, a relationship with war. I could be wrong. I'm setting myself up for mockery and, and all kinds of social media hate here. Watch my lips. Don't give a fuck. But I think Ultimo Dragon may yeah. have been part of the war promotion. And because of our relationship with Ultimo Dragon, that may have been the reason why you're seeing more talent from war coming over 
And if that is true, and I really have to go back and talk to Sonny and, and, and jog my memory, but if that's true, it is likely because New Japan and War were kind of working together on the side as well. That would be my semi-educated guess. Well, no, you're correct that Ultimo Dragon was, was, was wrestling with War for sure. So, yeah, maybe that's the, uh, the commonality between the two. Either way, uh, let's keep it moving here. We get a big, uh, a big moment here on June 16th, where six is going to, uh, be in a match with Rey Mysterio. Of course, six is the former Sean Waltman, but what's interesting is after the match where six wins, Kevin Nash power bombs, Ray. And two weeks later, this is a real thing. Kevin Nash has a match with Ray Mysterio. It goes one minute and 48 seconds. He's going to keep power bombing him until Conan comes out. And it looks like Conan's coming to make the save, but instead Conan rips up Ray Mysterio's knee, which is all being done here to explain that he's going to be out of action for two months. In fact, he does a stretcher job here. Talk to me about the Ray Mysterio, Kevin Nash relationship. God, it was solid. I mean, they were really, really tight. Um, I think that match was Kevin's idea and Ray was thrilled to do it. Um, but yeah, as far as the relationship goes, Kevin, Kevin and Ray were really tight as, as and Kevin and Conan were really, really tight. They were you know, and Scott Hall as well. They were all very close friends on the July 22nd nitro Mysterio comes out on crutches. And of course, Conan comes out, kicks away both crutches. Uh, and as Conan goes after him, Laparca, Sarkosis, and both Vianos back him up. And earlier in the show, they sort of set the stage for this by saying, you know, Conan helped get all the luchadors in the WCW. Um, on the August 4th nitro Conan beat psychosis in a minute and 48 seconds with the tequila sunrise Mysterio comes out limping. Conan kicks the crutch away and threatens to use it on him. And then Mysterio uses his other crutch to knock Conan out. And then he starts dancing around to show his knee was fine. In actuality, his knee is not fine, but he's ready to come back and, and we're setting up a road wild pay-per-view here. Conan's going to beat Ray in 10 minutes and 56 seconds. Uh, during the course of the match, he's really working to tear the mask off. And, um, eventually it's a three-star win for Conan. And we should mention that, um, the Tijuana wrestling commission around the same time is attempting to suspend Ray Mysterio for six months for no showing a show on August 29th. And Mysterio has to go to the commission and explain he was injured and had never agreed to do the show and was still advertised. And what ended up happening was, uh, he had to go in front of the crowd and explain what happened and that he would make up a date to these Tijuana wrestling fans in the future. This feels like the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in wrestling. What can you tell us about the the wrestling commissions in Tijuana. Have you ever heard of such shit like this? <laughs> no. And I was, you know, when you're laying this out just now, I'm thinking Tijuana wrestling commission. Isn't this like where you can go see a donkey show? I mean, I and just, they've got a wrestling commission. It sounds like a criminal activity to me more than anything else. I'm sure it was, uh, 
I'm sure there was some payola involved in the Tijuana Wrestling Commission. You spoke, you know, with some authority there. Have you been to some donkey, some donkey shows, bro? No, I've just read about it. I know they exist. I uh, mean, explain to our listeners what a donkey show is. She brought it up. <laughs> no, I can't do that. <laughs> Let me yeah. just say this. If you don't know what that I, I, is, don't Google it. Do not Google it. You will not be happy if you Google it. No, I mean, I get, now I'm mad for even bringing the reference <laughs> up because I'm not going to be able to get the visual out of my head. And I don't even know that they, I don't think they still exist. Do they, Conrad? I wouldn't know. I, I thought You go to Mexico a lot. Come on. If anybody I, knows, you do. They don't do them in Cabo. I don't know. Uh, the next week on Nitro, Ray would beat El Caliente, who it turns out is actually just Eddie Guerrero under a hood. Uh, and the fans are chanting, Eddie sucks. And uh, after the announcers acknowledge it, Ray unmasks him afterwards. And then October 13th, we get Dean Malenko beating Ray with a clover leaf, and Guerrero's going to start pulling at Mer- uh, Mysterio's mask, and he's going to submit rather than having his face exposed. Let's talk about what Meltzer was uh, reporting at the time. He says Meltzer or Mysterio Jr. is said to be very unhappy about losing his mask at Halloween Havoc. Although that is the plan, the last we've heard, it may be something that could change as late as the last minute. Mysterio Jr. signed an agent to negotiate with WCW for him, and uh, he's asked for his income to be upped to three hundred and fifty thousand. Supposedly, he's in the two hundred and forty thousand dollar range here. We recently talked about this because we covered. Seriously, the best match in WCW history, in my estimation, Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero from Halloween Havoc, 1997. Uh, they go 13 minutes, 51 seconds. It's cruiserweight title versus the mask. Uh, Ray wins the cruiserweight title. Really just unbelievable. A legendary match four and three quarters in the observer. Can't say a nice enough, nice stuff about him. I recently talked about this unmasking thing. Briefly defend it before the hate tweets start coming your way again. My thinking was, and I don't think I'm wrong, in, in, or I wasn't wrong necessarily, but my thinking was that for the, our domestic audience, where we made, we meaning WCW, made the vast majority of our money, whether it be in television, pay-per-views, live events, whatever the case may be, probably 95% of our revenue or more was generated here in the United States. And while I understood and to a degree appreciated the cultural difference between the lucha form of professional wrestling uh, and the domestic U.S. form of professional wrestling – uh, and I understood the, the the implications of taking off the mask. I, I understood it intellectually, but I didn't put the same value on it that Ray did. I believed, because of the nature of our domestic audience, that watching someone wrestle, when a, when, when a talent is in there, when there's a match occurring and someone is, is getting their ass kicked, uh, babyface or heel, in order to k- kind of, convey the emotion that's going along in that action you've got to see the the pain you've got to see the expression on the talent's face and by having a talent under a mask where you to the same degree not be able to feel and sense and see uh and vicariously experience 
you know, the, the situation that a heel or a baby face is in because you can't see their face. You know, you have, 70% of selling, you know, happens from the shoulders up. You know, you, you, you can be out there and you can be, you know, physically selling, you know, in every way possible. Somebody's working over your knee. You could be selling it like a champ. But if you're not expressing it in your face, if we're not communicating that, the audience doesn't feel it. So my my thought, you know, as short-winded as I can be, was to t- by taking the mask off. And again, you know, Ray is a great-looking character. He's a great-looking young man. And has great facial expressions. And I just really believe that whether he was, you know, smiling or out there as a baby face and we're experiencing a wind vicariously through him because we can see it and feel it in his eyes or whether he's selling because he's getting his ass kicked, having the mask off would enhance his ability to, to connect to the audience. That was the logic behind my thinking. What I underestimated, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm disappointed in myself for not having a, a bigger, broader uh, view of this at the time, but it is what it is. Um, I, I, I underestimated the value of that mask to Ray because by, by taking that mask off, he was basically saying goodbye to a lot of his business in Mexico. He was abandoning his, his, his audience, so to speak, and his fan base in Mexico. And I didn't appreciate that to, to the extent that I wish now I would have. Why'd but it you, is what it is. Why'd you change the finish here? Originally, he's supposed to lose this mask here, Halloween Havoc 1997. Instead, he fucking wins the thing. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know why the finish was changed. It was a long time ago. It may have been a compromise. It may have been, look, let's do it this way because, you know, as we're going forward, you know, the story is going to play out even better. It, it may have been a creative choice. It could have been a compromise. I'm, I, I really don't know. Well, he's going to lose the title back to Eddie on the November 10th nitro. Uh, and around the same time, all the Lucha Libre wrestlers, all the luchadors here would sign two year contracts with WCW and all were drug tested with the exception of Ray Mysterio. He's still negotiating a new price and Meltzer would say, not exactly sure what the deal is regarding them working in Mexico. But they are all definitely not allowed to work indie dates in the United States. And it doesn't appear WCW wants Conan or Mysterio to work Mexico at all. Talk to me about that. What's the hesitation from using or allowing Ray and Conan to work in Mexico? Did you have an interest in doing something in that market? Not so much an interest in doing something in that market, but there was an ongoing issue with talent schedules because guys like Ray who were booked a lot, um, in Mexico would take bookings, make plans for bookings that would often, uh, conflict with our either live event or television or pay-per-view schedule. So it was just managing the schedules really was the primary reason why I was reluctant to let guys that we were building on like Ray to work, uh, in Mexico. And the other issue was injuries. You know, it's, it's one thing you know, to let someone work for another organization, either for a payday or maybe in some cases like I did, you know, to, 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 to enhance the perception of the company as being more international, doing it occasionally is one thing, but when you do, when you're working for other people on a regular basis, every time you step in the ring, there's a risk of injury. Now, all of a sudden I've got a guy in Ray Mysterio that I'm starting to pay a quarter of a million dollars or more to, as you pointed out, we were negotiating with him at this time. If I've got that kind of equity invested in a talent, I 
I want to minimize that talent's opportunity to get hurt, either in my ring or in particularly somebody else's. Because if he goes over and gets hurt in somebody else's ring, uh, on somebody else's event where I have no financial stake, and I have a contract that says I've got to pay him while he's down, that puts me in a really bad position. So the, the logic was with Conan and with Ray, you know, once they started reaching that level of compensation where it became meaningful, I had to take uh, broader steps to kind of protect my, my investment. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the match on November 17th. It's Ray and Chris Jericho. They go six and a half minutes, but the finish is really remarkable. Ray jumps on the top rope and springboard reverses his position into a hurricane Rana. This is pretty common now, but really fucking ahead of its time in 1997. Um, let's fa- by the way, they're both still working now, which is just remarkable when you really think about it. Uh, let's fast forward to world war three. Eddie Guerrero is going to retain the cruiserweight title, beating Ray in 12 minutes and 42 seconds. Four stars, really a phenomenal match about as good as you'll see between the two, but that Halloween havoc match is just something that they can't beat. Um, Ray wins a mask versus mask match in triple uh, a on December 19th. So he's still, he's still hanging on there on uh, the first thunder or one of the first thunders rather January 15th, 1998 Ray would pin Hooven to, to win the cruiserweight title. When Guerrero went for a 450 splash, but Ray moved Guerrero magically lands on his feet and then Ray hits the hurricane Rana and that's it. But his next big pay-per-view outing will be sold out on January 24th, which we've covered before we get Jericho winning the cruiserweight title from Ray Mysterio in eight minutes and 22 seconds. And this is effectively his last match uh, before knee surgery. And, uh, it's an okay match, uh, three and a quarter stars. But the real trouble is he's, uh, he's hurt himself when he, he tore his ACL and his meniscus on January 6th in Rome, Georgia. He aggravates it worse, warming up for nitro on January 12th in Jacksonville, but still has a phenomenal handful of matches here, but now he's going to have to have full reconstructive surgery on January 28th in Atlanta, uh, before he's all the way out of here, as we mentioned, you know, he has matches with Ray and. And, uh, not right, but Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho, and he's doing what he can, but he's going to be down for real this time. You can't just strap on a knee brace after, you know, he was already working injured. This sort of feels inevitable. It wasn't a matter of when's he going to have knee surgery or if he's going to have knee surgery, but more of a matter of when, right? I think so. You know, and, and again, I can tell you from personal experience, just because you get knee surgery doesn't mean it's going to work. I, in fact, in my own case, uh, several years ago, I was training for a marathon and I've had a, a bad knee since high school. I tore my knee up originally, uh, when I was wrestling, uh, AEU freestyle, uh, right after high school. And I had an option then to either get surgery or not get surgery. And I remember everybody that I had talked to that had ever had knee surgery told me that they wish they wouldn't have done it because their, their knee was never as good after surgery as it was before. And I finally broke down after you know trying to train for a marathon, and my knee went out again for the last time. And I went and I had that surgery. And I can tell you, just be, and even today, you know, fast forward, you know, 2000, I think it was 17, 16 or 17, when I had that surgery, um, as as advanced as everything has become technically in, in the world of medicine and, and surgical technique, even to this day, my knee isn't as good after surgery as it was before. So I think a lot of talents. Um, and athletes in general, 
prefer if they can postpone that surgery to to postpone it, unless it's very minor. But I think, you know, you talk to Kevin Nash, a guy who's probably had 16 or 18 or more surgeries on his knees. Uh, It's not a cure-all. You know, once you get that thing cut open, you're likely going to put a a limit on your career. And I think that's probably what happened to a large degree with Ray. That's probably when you start thinking about, you know, trying to change your style too. And if you're looking to change your style or upgrade your style, well, you need a box of awesome from bespoke post bespoke post sends guys only the best stuff every month. So whether you're looking to craft your own hard cider or toast, perfectly aged fall cocktails, box of awesome has you covered. From style and grooming goods to barware, cooking tools, and outdoor gear, Box of Awesome has carefully built collections for every part of your life. To get started, just take the quiz at boxofawesome.com and your answers will help them pick the right Box of Awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up and you can skip a month or cancel anytime. Now, each box only costs about 45 bucks, but has more than $70 worth of gear inside. I got a knife a couple of months ago that people still talk about when they come over. It's just phenomenal. I know we've talked about the weekender bag and you got some, some stuff for your bar. You can get 20% off your first monthly box. When you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the promo code 83 weeks at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com And the code is 83 weeks for 20% off your first box. And by the way, this too would be badass for a great Christmas present. Am I wrong? Absolutely. And by the way, you talked about, um, aging, you know, your own alcoholic beverage as a part of the, there's a cast you can get. This is one of my favorite bespoke uh, gifts. There's a, a small wooden cask that you can fill up like with a quart of your favorite, whether it's bourbon or whiskey or whatever it may be, scotch. And they have these, uh, additives that you can use, these natural additives that you can use and you can effectively, um, age, your, let's say you, you, you throw in a, a moderately priced whiskey and you age it in this cask for a period of time with these additives. You, and then you open up and you take a shot of it, let's say two weeks later, it's like you're drinking you know, a, a whiskey that came from somebody's private collection. It really enhances the flavor of it it's, and it's fun to do. And you, there's all kinds of unique flavors and treatments that you can give your favorite um, adult beverage. So w- whatever it may be, if you're looking for something unique, either for yourself or for your home or for a gift, definitely some cool stuff over there. Can't recommend it enough. Boxofawesome.com. Use that promo code 83 weeks. You get 20% off your first box. We love ours and you'll love yours. Boxofawesome.com. Promo code 83 weeks. Let's talk about when Ray comes back. He's going to return to bash at the beach, July 12th, 1998. And of course his first match back, he's going to be uh, taking on Chris Jericho, which is, uh, who put him on the shelf originally and he wins the cruiserweight title. And this is the era where Jericho's really coming into his own. The, uh, the pre-match antics with Jericho and Jojo Dillon are hilarious. Pretty funny stuff here. When Ray's music plays. Uh, people are ready for it. He's from San Diego, so he's going to get a huge reaction and the match is good, especially for what it was two and three quarter stars, but really it's all storyline just because, you know, we're finally getting the big payoff for Ray being on the shelf and the next night on nitro JJ Jericho, Ray and Dean would come out for a conference, which led Jericho to getting the cruiserweight title back and Mysterio and Malenko agreeing to wrestle later in the show for the number one contendership. 
Of course, later we would see Ray pin Dean after Jericho hit Dean with the cruiserweight title. Um, this is good stuff and it does good by everybody involved, whether it's Malenko or it's Jericho or it's Mysterio, really some of the more clever booking of the year. Yeah. And they, I'd say what those guys, first of all, the chemistry between all of them was so good. I mean, they, they loved each other. They had worked together, you know, so many different times. They knew each other's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and more than anything, you know, they were out there to, to make each other look even better. Than, than they did before the match. So the chemistry between that group of guys combined with their amazing athleticism and the charisma, you know, Chris Jericho, you know, he, he'll disagree with this. I'm sure when he hears this or hears of it, um, I think in terms of charisma, even though he was, Chris was just beginning to develop his, his unique talents in the ring, not only physically, but as a character, I think in some respects, this was peak Chris Jericho. Yeah. Yes, he went on to become a bigger star. He was on a bigger platform. He was working with, you know, amazing talents at the very highest levels in WWE. I get all that. So don't even bother picking up your fucking keyboard and tweeting me bullshit because I don't want to read it. I understand that Chris was a bigger star in WWE than he was in WCW. What I'm suggesting that is physically, in terms of what Chris was capable of doing in the ring, athletically, again, because he was lighter, younger, uh, you know, no injuries, all of those things, and amazingly talented on top of it. Um, I think some of Chris's best best work as a character and as a performer, in-ring performer, took place during this period of time. Let the hate mail begin. No, I don't disagree. I've said that pretty consistently. This is my favorite version of, uh, of, of all the great Jericho personas. Cause he has recreated himself several times. This is my favorite one. Uh, it's the one that, I mean, I, I, somewhere I still have a, uh, Monday night Jericho t-shirt just really, really well done. Uh, July 17th on thunder race, taking on Hooventude and Bret Hart comes out and attacks both and puts Ray in a figure four on the ring post. Uh, it's been said that Brett was a big fan of Ray Mysterio's. Did you guys ever kick around the idea of them doing uh, some sort of an angle or, or a longer feud together? I don't think we really did. You know, it, it, at that time, it would not have made sense for me. My biggest struggle, and this was a, you know, this was a challenge and probably to a degree, one of the things that made my relationship with not only Chris Jericho, but Eddie and Ray to a degree and some of the other uh, cruiserweight guys. They didn't want to be cruiserweight guys. They wanted a main event. And I, you know, I understand that as a performer, you want all, you want as much attention as you can get. You want to be at the top of the card, not in the middle of the card. You want to be in the main event of a television show, not in the crossover. Even though the crossover is just as important as the main event in terms of you know a television format, by crossover I mean if if your show starts at eight and goes to ten, the crossover match would be the one that was occurring at nine o'clock. You want to start as strong as you can at the beginning of an episode. You want to be as hot as you can in the middle of an episode, and you want to be even more interesting at the end of the episode, whether it's a cliffhanger, action, or whatever it may be. So when I say crossover, that's what I'm talking about in terms of a television format for me the reason i created the cruiserweight division is so that i had a powerful crossover 
that was my goal. That was a format element that we created with Nitro that still exists in two and three hour formats to this day. But and it could, because they didn't before before Nitro. But at this point, um, the guys who were you know getting all the attention in the cruiserweight division, they were kind of saying to themselves, "Hey, well, why can't I wrestle in the main event?" I know that was one of the biggest issues that I had with Jericho because we talked about it. Well, let's talk about, uh, the LWO It's formed around this same time led by Eddie Guerrero. Talk to me about how the LWO comes to be well, we would see them start to try to, uh, recruit Ray Mysterio and he's going to deny him. I'm going to do my best to recall as many of the details as I can on this idea. Um, I think I got most of it down pretty well, but. Uh, I was in Los Angeles for a meeting with Mandalay Sports and Entertainment. At the time, Jason, and by the way, a little background on Mandalay Sports and Entertainment. Owned by a gentleman by the name of Peter Goober. Yep, Peter Goober. G-U-B-E-R. Interesting kind of quirky name, Goober. But one of the most successful people in the entertainment business at that time. He's a former chairman uh, of, of Sony Pictures. He currently, I believe, is part owner in uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. His studio, Mandalay, Mandalay uh, Entertainment and then Mandalay Sports and Entertainment, two different companies under the same umbrella, uh, has probably produced some of the top feature films of, that you've seen um, over the last 20 years. So very, very successful guy. And I had a meeting there um, at Mandalay Sports and Entertainment. Jason Hervey was there at the time, and we went out to lunch. And I believe we were we were either in a Greek restaurant or a Mexican restaurant. I can't remember which. But that's when we got into the conversation about, you know, the NWO and how successful uh, it was and, you know, on and on and on. We're talking about that. And I think it was Jason Hervey that actually came up with the idea of the Latino world order. He, and I, I don't know if he threw it out. It was, you know, Jason wasn't working for us at the time. He Again, he was working for Mandalay Sports and Entertainment. But, you know, we were friends and Jason was obviously a big wrestling fan. And Jason and I had some you know projects together during that period of time. And he threw the idea out there. And I'm not sure if he threw it out as a joke or if he was serious about it or a little bit of both. But nonetheless, it kind of took on, and I, you know, I talked to Eddie about it, and I, Eddie was pretty—he uh, thought it was a pretty cool idea. He got excited about it, and there you go. Fuck. What's, what's what's the matter? Did I bore you? No, it's just the NWO sucked almost as much as Prince Ikea. Oh my God! You it did not. We sold a ton of LWO merchandise. It gave a great story. You know, for for a lot of the Lucha guys outside of the, you know, just competing for the Cruiserweight Championship title, it gave us something to work with. It was colorful. I don't know. I I think you're wrong about that. I think LWO was one of Jason Hervey's best ideas. On November 19th, Eddie Guerrero beat Ray in four minutes and 55 seconds after Hoovey screwed up trying to get at Eddie and instead leg dropped Ray, causing Eddie to pin him. And because he loses... Ray has to join the LWO. <laughs> brilliant. Just brilliant. Yeah. Come uh, on. You thought it was good. You you really did. Deep down you you dug it. Didn't you? No, I didn't. Oh, come on. Um 
All right, well, let's keep it moving here. Uh, the December 3rd Thunder, Ray would beat Guerrero in a match to, or Juventu Guerrero, in a match to determine who got the cruiserweight spot when the LWO interfered and Kidman made the save. And during the uh, post-match brawl, a fan gets past security and is about to blindside Guerrero, but he trips over the ropes and Guerrero would kick him in the face as hard as he could. It's pretty phenomenal. That's, that's awesome. our, our Starcade match for 1998. It's Hooventude retaining the cruiserweight title, beating both Ray Mysterio and Hooventude. Um, pretty cool deal here to have a three-way for the uh, cruiserweight title four and a four and a half stars. You know, we, we've been on a roll so far with just singles matches. And now we've got a, a, a as ECW would call it a three-way dance. Were you four three ways? It feels like a lot of, uh, a lot of old timers, like a, a Bruce Pritchard, they don't really like three ways, but I have a feeling that, that you're sort of for them. <laughs> God, you just, you just took that giant softball and you grabbed it with a, just a glean in your eye and you pitched that softball to me ever so slowly, hoping that I would reach back with my bat dig in deep and take a huge swing at that softball question and set myself up. But well, yeah, I always dug three ways. I figured you might. I mean, cause the, <laughs> the deal is you're big on action and, and you like the action and you want fast paced. And I think Bruce is a little more old school and he wants people to slow down and tell a story. And he thinks that, you know, when you get too many people involved, it becomes a clusterfuck. But I think you like the chaos. You like the speed. You like the unpredictability. And I don't know. I mean, are, are you different from all the other old schoolers? You're, you're a fan of the three-way? Actually, I'm not. I, I probably agree more with Bruce than anybody else on the subject. I, I too, believe. Look, even to this, to this day, you, you say a big six-man main event insert we don't have any good story yeah here that's really what that is when you throw in the triple threats and six-man main events and eight-man tags and it's just like okay well we can't think of anything else to do we don't really have a good story that means anything to the audience we don't know really where we're going or what we're doing in the future so let's have a big six-man main event that's typically what that's at least what it says to me to this day, when I see you know when I see that being promoted as a big you know main event, it's like okay, why do I give a shit? Oh, that's right, I don't. Which is why you're doing what you're doing because you don't have anything that really interests me. So I'm going to throw a you know a collage of action your way, and hopefully that will attract your attention. And I don't mean to be so critical, but that's how I fucking feel about that. So yeah, I'm I agree more with Bruce. You know, give me two guys in a story, two girls in a story. Give me something that matters. Slow it down so that I can understand it. Speed it up when need be to get my imagination going and, you know, get me sitting on the edge of my chair. But don't just throw a bunch of action my way hoping it's going to catch my imagination because it's not. It's just your way of covering your uncreative ass. It's um, it's probably something that, creates I, I can't imagine everybody leaves a three-way feeling satisfied you know <laughs> you keep dancing around this don't you you love this no i'm just saying like one of the guys is going to lose but the other guy's not i mean one's going to win one's going to lose and the other guy's just sort of there like it doesn't you know you're big on stakes and 
what are the stakes for the guy who didn't win or lose? Like he was just sort of there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's there's now, if you've got three guys with a story, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to have, you know, you got three people in a room. When I say guys, I mean, talents, men, women, don't, no more hate mail guys. Just don't do it. People, not guys. I shouldn't say guys. Cause we do have some women that listen to the show. This is, I guess, if you looked at our research, it is a little bit of a testicle festival, pre- predominantly a male audience, but we do have some women wrestling. And I want you to are listening. And I do want you to know that when I use the term guys in its generic application, um, I also mean to include women too. So there's my disclaimer. But for the most part, how do you have, you know, it takes an antagonist and a protagonist, a good guy and a bad guy, a heel and a baby face to tell a good story, right? Someone's got to be aspiring to achieve something and on a journey to overcome something. And somebody has to be trying to hold on to whatever it is they have. That's the story. It's a basic story. It, 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 you know, it's been the, the basis of every basic good story since the beginning of storytelling fucking time back in the caves where cavemen would draw pictures on the wall of epic battles or hunting or whatever the case may be. They were representations of a story in a journey, and the essence of that story and that journey has always been the same. It's never changed. Good guy, bad guy, babyface, heel, antagonist, protagonist, take your fucking pick, whatever word you want to choose but it's a basic story now how do you have an antagonist and two protagonists how do you tell that story or or vice versa how does that happen in a way that creates emotion that people can relate to the answer is it generally doesn't it generally doesn't so uh, that's my fired up too much caffeine way of saying i agree with you Conrad. On January 11th on Nitro, the show opens with a Ric Flair interview and uh, he puts JJ Dillon back into power. Of course, he's one control of the company here. He says Hogan's got to defend his uh, title of Super Brawl. And then he calls out the LWO and says they're the most talented wrestlers in the company. He asks them all to join WCW and gives them their shirts. And they all do, except Ray, who walks out. Fast forward later in the night. Luger's going to come out and attack Ray's opponent, Kaz Hayashi. And he tells Ray to take the shirt off. And when he refuses, Luger attacks him. Ray starts to get a comeback and the place is going nuts, but Luger cuts him off and beats him up. And then Conan runs in for the save, but that brings the whole wolf pack out and they all turn on him complete with Scott Hall hitting him with the taser. Uh, now we're set up for sold out and we've really upped the stakes because no longer are we in the three ways. Now we're in the four ways. Uh, we've got Billy Kidman, Hooventude, Psychosis, and Rey Mysterio. And it's uh, 14 minutes, 24 seconds, four-star match. Really, really great stuff. Can't recommend this enough. Probably the best match that we saw on a sold-out pay-per-view. But the next night is something that I've wanted to ask about. Ray is going to wrestle a performer named Blitzkrieg. And Blitzkrieg, it was a little bit of a, an internet sensation because he wasn't around very long, left the business, moved on to doing something else. But wow, what a performer. What can you tell us about Blitzkrieg? Do you remember anything about Blitzkrieg at all? Absolutely nothing. And I don't remember this match, but you piqued my interest, piqued it, I dare say. And I'm going to have to go back and try to find this match and watch it because I don't remember 
I'm hoping I'm hoping you've got some information in front of you that will help jog my memory because now you've get you've really captured my interest. You put something over like that, like this match, this guy that came in from out of nowhere, had a couple great matches, and then went off to become a brain surgeon or whatever he did. I want to hear more. Yeah, he he, he left seriously to go become a full time computer technician. This was real. Really? But uh he, he comes in, I think he starts wrestling in like ninety four out on the West Coast and then gets a lot of attention out there and then got signed with you guys, was with you through ninety eight and ninety nine. I guess he started like midway through ninety eight. Um, but by October of ninety nine, he's like, Nah, I'm out of here and just leaves the business. And I think he popped up, you know, here or there, but his real name is Jay Ross or Jeremiah Ross. He's forty four now. Uh, not a huge dude. Five, six, I think is what he was billed at height wise and billed at like 179 pounds. So not a giant, but really an entertaining wrestler. We get lots of questions about him. Uh, you should go check it out. If you're curious, it's, uh, January 8th, nitro, um, uh, of 1999. Let's talk about super brawl 99. Interesting matchup to say the least the outsider, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash taking on Ray Mysterio and Conan. You got to think this is what Ray's been looking for. You know, while he's having phenomenal matches with, with smaller and stature opponents, now he's in with two primetime players, two of the biggest stars in WCW. He's teaming with his old pal Conan. They go 11 minutes, uh, three and a quarter stars. Uh, Meltzer would say Mysterio Jr. was a great one-man show here. Um, talk to me about how, you know, this, this comes to be. I'm 99.9% sure that it was the principals involved in the match that put it together. And Kevin obviously had a lot of influence with me. And I listened to Kevin and Scott both um, when it came to creative. Whenever, you know, Scott's head was on straight, he was one of the best. So I'm sure they came to me. And again, much like I talked about, you know, with Dean and Chris and Eddie and, and Ray, you know, having chemistry. You know, the, the, the chemistry between the four people we're talking about now, Scott and Kevin were super tight with, with Conan and Ray, as I mentioned earlier. They had a lot of respect for each other. And look, when, when and I've said this so many times, and I don't mean to always use a disclaimer when I talk about Scott Hall, but, you know, certain fans don't remember Scott Hall when he was at the top of his game. And 99.9% you know, .9 of the people listening to the show have never worked with Scott Hall when his head was on straight and things were going well for him. Uh, Scott Hall, at the right time, was one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. One of the most creative people I've ever worked with, especially when it came to characters and laying out matches. Really a phenomenal talent. And... When Scott and Kevin, you know, put their minds to it, and in this case, because of the relationship with Ray and Conan, I knew that they would. I was very supportive of this because I knew it would be something special. And it, to, to a degree, it was a compromise because, again, Ray and a lot of the, the guys who were typically in that cruiserweight category at the time, including Chris Jericho, were becoming very vocal about wanting to be able to be uh, in main events and work with talent other than those that were part of the cruiserweight category. So I think part of it was compromise on my part. Part of it was, you know, Scott and Kevin really wanting to do this for Ray and Conan. And I thought, what the hell? It, it, it you know, if it, if it's a bit of a compromise and I'm giving the guys what they want and I know I'm going to get something special out of the deal, hell, why not? Well, this is a, a very special moment because we talked about, you know, Hey, this was discussed all the way back at uh, Halloween havoc, 1997, it's February of 1999 before it happens. And of course 
the steps here, the stakes, as you would say, are that after the match, because Ray lost, he has to unmask. And I guess if you're going to unmask, you know, in a traditional sense, it should be in the main event, maybe for a career versus a mask or a title versus a mask or hair versus a mask. That's the way things are done in Mexico, but here in WCW, at least Ray got to do it with two of the biggest stars on the show. Um, Elizabeth is going to distract the ref. So Scott Hall gets to use the outsider's edge on Mysterio. And he puts Nash on top for the pin. And then Mysterio has to unmask and Meltzer would say the crowd didn't react to the unmasking. Like it was any big deal. Although Shivani does try to play it up as if this is history in the making. Um, Ray with Haraya said, I was strongly against it. I don't think WCW understood what the mask meant to me, my fans or my family. It was a very bad move on their behalf. They wanted Ray Mysterio with the mask and losing it hurt me a lot. It was also frustrating that it didn't come as the climax to a feud with another masked wrestler, but just a throwaway match. The same thing happened to Hooventude and psychosis and psychologically wise or psychology wise. Uh, it was a bad move by Eric Bischoff. I think the fans understand that I was in a position where I had no other option. Either I had to lose my mask or lose my job. What do you make of those comments? Um, I understand them. Go back to, you know, the comment that, um, what's his name made early on in your uh, recital of, of what he wrote, you know, when Ray unmasked the audience, didn't react like it was any big deal because it wasn't to the American audience because the American audience didn't understand the history, the culturally we're much different. Our audience is much different than a Lucha Libre audience in Mexico. There isn't the heritage of the mask and, and all of the things here in the United States that exist in Mexico. And in, by the way, even though the American audience is much more knowledgeable today than they were back in the late nineties of you know, Lucha Libre and, and its influence. Um, even today, the American audience isn't going to feel the same way about a wrestler losing his mask as they would in Mexico, even though the audience, by and large, is more knowledgeable today than they were, you know, 20 some odd years ago. They still wouldn't care, not to the same extent. So, you know, it, it kind of justifies my position at that time. If the audience isn't, if, if the mask doesn't really mean anything, because the audience isn't reacting to someone losing it, then it probably doesn't really mean anything anyway, right? Well, maybe you won't, you might not agree or a listener may not agree, but that was my thinking back then is it, the mask just didn't, it, it didn't bring equity to the table. Now you could argue, yeah, but if you knew anything about licensing and merchandise, look how much money WWF made, you know, WCW in 1998 or 1999, February of 1999, still as successful as we were and as much progress as we had made over the preceding, you know, four or five years, we still at this point at our peak hadn't developed a mature mature, sophisticated, and proven licensing and merchandising um, part of our business plan. We were still learning as we were growing at uh, when it came to licensing and merchandising. So there wasn't the revenue there that there was in WWF, who had already had, you know, 20 years of, you know, 
of building a sophisticated licensing and merchandising infrastructure. We didn't have that. So we couldn't exploit the mask from a, a, a financial point of view. The audience didn't really connect to it the way the Mexican audience did. But I understand Ray's feelings, and Ray was right. You know, I said it myself earlier in this show. I wish I would have appreciated more what the mask meant to Ray. I'm not sure it would have changed my mind, by the way, because business is business. But I didn't give it its um, proper consideration. I did give Ray the proper, I guess, respect or consideration in, in terms of what that mask meant to him. You know, even hearing you read that back, you know, Ray's words, oh, Eric Bischoff didn't understand what it meant to me and my family. Uh, true. That is true. I hate to admit it. I'm not being a smartass about it. Uh, but at the same time, that's not business. So, you know, it, it, I, I get it. I get I get it now more so than I did then. But um, it's at the same time, business is business. Did Kevin Nash have an opinion on this that you remember? Mm, not that I, I mean, not, he didn't, he didn't take a stand. You know, I, I remember that. I'm sure, you know, if I had to bet, I would bet that Kevin was supportive of Ray keeping the mask I, because, you know, Kevin was, Kevin was tight with Ray and it meant a lot to Ray. So I'm, I'm guessing Kevin probably felt at the time that there was no reason to take the mask off of him. But it's, again, it's not like he, you know, he didn't draw a line in the sand or pull me aside and try to campaign or anything like that. Well, and, and Kevin Nash is, you know, I think everybody knows this listening. Kevin Nash is all about the money and. I'm sure that he, you know, Ray probably went to his, his, uh, his little big brother and asked some advice and he probably said, Hey, where's the money in this? And the next night on nitro Ray pins, Kevin Nash in two minutes and 40 seconds, Nash has him up for the power bomb, but Ray punches him in the head a few times and lands on top for the pin. A few days later in Tijuana, Ray has a mask versus mask match with psychosis. Of course, Ray loses and, uh, Liz's mask in Mexico in the process on the March 1st nitro. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, I forgot all about that. So if, so if Eric Bischoff was so evil, uncaring that he forced Ray Mysterio to unmask here in the United States, why would Ray be willing to be unmasked in Mexico? Keeping in mind, mind you, now listen, I know the first reaction people are going to come up with, yeah, but once you took the mask off on Nitro, then it didn't mean anything anymore. How many people in Mexico get TNT? Well, eh, probably none. Yeah, but come on, the wrestling magazines exist down there. So what? And I don't know that that's true. We assume that's true. And let's say a handful of them do. They're not covering the United States. Come on. It didn't, it was so important. I mean, it was so devastating to Ray and to his family. I'm not mocking. Okay. I know I sound like I'm just trying to be entertaining and I'm doing a piss poor job of it. I might add. But if it was so important to Ray to hold on to that mask here in the United States, why would he be willing to go to Mexico and do it when 99.9% of the Mexican audience or, or people in Mexico can't even get TNT if they wanted it? That makes no sense to me. I'd like to hear that. I'd like to hear a rebuttal on that, sir. We'll work on it. All right. Let's get Ray on the show sometime. Oh, I'm for it. 
Uh, the March 1st Nitro, Ray would beat Bam Bam Bigelow after a low blow and a Hurricane Rana. I guess we should mention Ray's essentially doing a giant killer gimmick here, which is uh, the same thing that Spike Dudley, once upon a time, had done in ECW. And coincidentally enough, Spike started his with Bam Bam as well. Uh, to keep this giant killer angle going, the next week, Ray would beat Scott Norton after a low blow. And that sets up the uncensored pay per view which is Kevin Nash and Ray Mysterio. And I guess this was supposed to be a bigger show or a bigger spot on the show than, than maybe it wound up being Meltzer would say this was originally listed as being the semifinal match on the card as late as the afternoon. And he doesn't know why it was moved up so early in the show, but either way, Mysterio is, is jazzed about being in here for this spot, but Kevin Nash wins. Um, what, what do you mean? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Kevin Nash, who was, what is he legitimate? Seven, six, 11, seven foot. Yeah. He's a big boy. 300 some odd pounds. Yeah. You know, shoulders as wide as, as a, as a Dodge charger. And wait a minute. This guy beats a five foot six hundred and forty five pound guy. Why is that so unbelievable to you, Conrad? Well, why is that so hard? Why is that not common freaking sense? Why can't the audience look at Ray, an obvious underdog, and give him credit and put him over? And why doesn't Ray become even a bigger baby face? Not because he beat, and, and quite honestly, an unbelievably, uh, in an unbelievable fashion, had he beat Kevin Nash, not only would he have beat Kevin, but why can't why can't people understand that the art of getting a guy like Ray over isn't because he necessarily won, but because he had the courage to try. That's the aspirational element of a character in this particular story. Not that he wins or he loses, but he has the courage to try because isn't that what we all want in ourselves? I ask you, nay, nay, <laughs> this entire big man, little man dynamic. I mean, it's so old. It's biblical. It's David and Goliath. And in that famous David and Goliath story, did the giant win? But you've got to do things that people don't expect, right? Otherwise, people are going, oh, well, this is just like the story in the Bible of David and Goliath. Oh, yeah. This isn't a, That's what no, they, they would have. How many? Look, I mean, come on. The Bible, the, the most popular book ever written, for crying out loud. You think that people haven't heard that story before? You think that they wouldn't have recognized that all we did was follow the same story arc that was written so long ago? No, we had to be innovative. We had to come up with a finish and an ending that people didn't expect. Not one they would. I'm glad the uh, Bible didn't have the NWO in there because <laughs> you would have really tanked WCW a lot faster. Uh, oh, the, you're dick. Yeah, I am. The next night on Nitro, <laughs> Ray beat Kidman for the Cruiserweight title. Uh, so our, our, our giant killer thing is over. Ray is now maskless. Now get back in there and wrestle the juniors. There you go. Uh, there you go. Uh, now that's not for long though. Ray does get to challenge for the world title. It's his first shot against the world champion. It's Ric Flair and believe it or not, Ray wins. Of course it's by DQ, but whatever. Uh, after the match, Ray kicks Flair into the swimming pool and the show goes off the air. So a fun little moment for what it was. 
on the March 28th Nitro, Ray and Kidman win the tag titles from Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko. When Raven and Sandman come out and Raven DDTs Malenko and then Ray pins him. And now we've got Ray as a double champion. So he's a cruiserweight champion and also a tag champion. Uh, let's talk about spring stampede. We've got Mysterio pinning Billy Kidman here to retain his cruiserweight title. 15 minutes, 32 seconds, three-star match. Uh, not nearly as good as some of their other stuff, but still a very good showing. Uh, it feels like it, almost every time you put Ray on pay-per-view, unless it was with Prince fucking Iakea. God, get off match. of Prince Iakea. Just get off of it. Let it go, Conrad. You're carrying baggage around that is absolutely unnecessary, unhealthy, and non-productive. Just let it go. Yes. Let me hear you say, I like Prince Iakea. Nope. Say it. No. Nope. Come on. Can't. Just say the words. Just say the words. I'm Conrad Thompson and I like Prince Ikea. Say I'm, it. You'll I'm feel Con- better. I'm Conrad Thompson and I like Prince albums. On the April 19th Nitro, Ray would lose Stubber. the cruiserweight Fucker. title to Psychosis in a four way match, which I know you were curious about what that must be like. That included Hooventude and Blitzkrieg. <laughs> Just let. <laughs> Uh, the slammery pay-per-view. <laughs> well, it's got Blitzkrieg in it. You were just talking about Blitzkrieg. Uh, the, the May 9th pay-per-view slammery. We've got Raven and, uh, Perry Saturn winning a three-way over Mysterio and Kidman, Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit. They get a ton of time here. 17 and a half minutes. Uh, lots of talent in this, but again, you know, when you got this many people involved in a match, we talked about what a clusterfuck could be when there's three guys in there. Well, now there's three tag teams. So there's a little Stupid. bit of that here, but still three and a quarter stars. So we were running out of ideas. Yes. And, I'm, and that, that was it. We didn't have a great story. We had great talent, some great talent, but we didn't have a great story. We didn't know where we were going. This was 1999. I was there. I can tell you, especially in the spring of 1999, it was nothing but chaos uh, internally behind the scenes, as well as what was going on on television. But this is a perfect representation. I mean, I'm, I was guilty of it myself. I did it. I know from where I speak when it comes to four mans, six mans, eight mans, all that kind of gimmick shit that people put on TV. It's really a representation of the fact that your creative isn't functioning properly and you don't have a good story. And this was, this was me doing it. In, in whatever it was, February, spring of 1999. Here's how I know you're out of ideas. <laughs> I can't believe this is a real sentence. I, I, and I can't believe I'm participating in it either. This is kind of bullshit. Ray joins the no limit soldiers group with master P Conan, Brad Armstrong and swole. Why is that so weird? Hootie who? Oh, Jesus. What's your favorite master P song? Um, hold on. Let me Siri. Give me master P songless. Uh, Siri's not working in here. I'm sorry. I can't give it to you. I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't imagine. Um, y- your friend, uh, Cody Rhodes is a big fan of make them say, uh, what is that? What? Uh, is it, say that again? Yeah. It's make them say, uh, but, uh, at the beginning of the song, someone mispronounces it comically. And goes, anyway, oh. great American bash. Yeah. You paid a lot of money for that shit too. 
uh, June 13th, Conan and Mysterio are going to be Kurt Henning and uh, Bobby Duncan Jr. 10 minutes, 44 seconds. Uh, so you get the idea. Now he's hip hop a little bit bashes the beach as Conan and Mysterio and swole and BA winning an elimination match over the West Texas rednecks. Um, in hindsight, you know, I understand we're trying, you know, he's probably having fun, but this is not really making the the best use of our insanely talented Ray Mysterio. Am I right? You know, I don't know that that's true. I mean, this was not a long-term move for Ray. Thank God. It wasn't, it wasn't like the, you know, no limit soldiers were going to, you know, were ever planned, uh, to be a long running act within nitro or WCW. This was a moment in time. And it was also a moment in time and opportunity to diversify Ray's character. He was no longer just the mask, you know, luchador for Mexico and the high flying colorful athlete that everybody had come to know by this point over the course of a couple of years on Nitro, it was time for his character to grow. And this was a short-term opportunity to do that. Look in Ray's real life as a part of who Ray was at that time. He loved hip hop. You know, he was, he was part of that kind of, I don't want to say street culture, but a very hip, very cool, younger a culture in San Diego, culture in San Diego, and he loved hip hop. So it was a natural thing for him to do that gave a different dimension to his otherwise very well-established character. In hindsight, was it a bad idea? I don't think so. It was a moment. It was a good rub, as they say in the industry from time to time. Uh, and it wasn't part of a long-term plan. And we weren't going to take Ray out of the world that he had been in. And from now, strictly, he was going to be the hip-hop street guy. That wasn't the plan either. But it was a good opportunity to to, to get him a rub with somebody. You know, Master P, say what you want. I wasn't a Master P fan. Neither were you probably at the time. Oh, no, uh, no, I but, was with it. Listen, I know that sounds silly, but Master P and No Limit, uh, his, his rap label, No Limit Soldiers, it was... It was the biggest thing in hip hop at the time. And that sort of, you know, for years and years, those sort of East coast, West coast. And then there started to be a little bit popping up in Memphis, but all of a sudden Louisiana was on the map and it was because of master P and as a result, we got cash money millionaires and, and, and little Wayne. And there was a ton of influence that, that they carried in the music industry at the time. It just felt weird. Master P being in wrestling. And as you said, it didn't last very long. Meltzer would write in early August. Master P is officially gone. Conan and Mysterio have been pulled out of the no limit soldiers, which will now become a jobber group. Uh, there is some attempt to pull Brad Armstrong out of the soldiers and group him with Mysterio Conan and Eddie Guerrero. Um, yeah, I don't know that I do want to mention though, because you and I haven't talked about this. You're sort of responsible for getting Master P involved in the wrestling business originally. And then this past year, sometime over the last several months, it was announced that he was now the primary investor of the independent wrestling group House of Glory. And uh, I think he's getting back into the wrestling business. Were you surprised to hear that he had some sort of interest there? No, I wasn't. But And I don't know that we've ever talked about it on the show. But I had uh, breakfast with uh, Master P about... A month and a half ago or two months ago, whatever it was, while I was still in Connecticut, I went up to New York. I had some other business in New York, and uh, P was going to be in New York at the same time. 
So he had given me a call and wanted to know if you know, we could get together. So I went up and had breakfast with him and uh, met with a couple of his guys on his team. And, yeah, he's – he's he, and listen, Master P is a brilliant guy. You know, you back – and this is not the show about Master P, but here's a guy you talk about, you know, Louisiana and, and where it fit within the, the East Coast, West Coast kind of hip-hop wars at the time. You know, nobody was from, from Louisiana. There was no representation uh, in the hip hop community uh, in Louisiana at the time, and and Master B had had a record, had an offer for like a million dollars. This is a guy that was, you know, hustling on the streets and had no money, grew up poor, rough part of town, New Orleans. You know, not an unusual story uh, at that time, and was offered a million dollars to sign with the West Coast label, and he walked away from it to start his own. He's an amazing story and a really, really intelligent guy. And, yeah, I did have, have breakfast with him a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was. And uh, he's got his own vision uh, for what he's doing. I think he's right on the money uh, if he puts his mind to it and really commits to it. I think he's got a good shot at being successful. He's not going to become a you know, a threat to, to WWE or AEW or anything like that. But he's going to carve out a very, very nice piece of business for himself because he's got an intense fan base to this day. Uh, he's promoting music and he's promoting our artists right now all over the country. So I'm not surprised because he is a smart businessman and he, he liked wrestling. He loved it. He had a great time doing it. Yeah. I was surprised to hear you reveal that. I knew you had breakfast with him or whatever, but I thought one of the, uh, conditions you had meant that, you know, you guys weren't going to talk about it. So, yeah, no, I, I didn't want because of the timing of it, you know, just the fact that, you know, people start writing things that aren't true and the, the internet will go wild with it. I didn't want that to happen either before or after the meeting. So we agreed just to kind of keep it to ourselves, but it was, it was really more of just get together and, you know, catch up. And we hadn't talked to each other in a long time. And he wanted to explain to me what, what he was doing and what his vision was. And I was very supportive of it. And we parted friends and that was it. There was no, no more or less to that meeting than that. But yeah, I had, I decided I, because of the, this is right after I was let go from WWE. So immediately, if the word would have gotten out, people would have gone wild with it and assumed a bunch of things that weren't true. Well, they're going to do that now because it's on every news site within an hour of our show. Post. No, but, but, it, but it doesn't matter because it was months ago and clearly nothing happened because there was nothing ever going to happen. It was just two people getting together and hearing some ideas and, you know, exploring the idea. And, and that was it. But nothing, nothing happened. Nothing's going to happen. I'm really not, uh, I don't think I fit the demo <laughs> for what they're doing, <laughs> quite obviously. So uh, it is what it is. But no, it was just, I can't you, know, you asked me about his interest in wrestling, so I thought I'd share that. I'm glad you did, because I've always wondered, since I knew that meeting happened, like imagine being a wrestling fan and you're just in town on business or something, and you're having breakfast, and you look over and master fucking peas eating a waffle with Eric Bischoff. What the fuck? Yeah, we were in this really cool hotel at JFK. It's a brand new hotel. It's the TWA International Hotel. Have you seen it? Oh, it's awesome. It is the craziest thing I've ever seen. It was like I was walking into a Jetsons cartoon. It was so cool. It's like a ter airline terminal from the 19 late 50s or early 60s. I guess early to mid 60s would be more like it. So all the furniture is very 60s themed. Uh, the whole architecture of the building is is 60s themed. They got a, a, an old TWA jet kind of outside the lobby, and it's just cool as shit. It is cool. And, um, 
you know, that's what, one of the fun things I enjoy about this show is we give you a little more than you expect. You know, nobody expected to hear about you having breakfast with master P uh, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about what Ray is doing on the heels of, um, of this no limit soldiers thing. Chris Jericho's final match in WCW is, is July 21st in Peoria. It's a tag match against Eddie or with Eddie against Kidman and Ray. Of course, Eddie pins Chris with the frog splash. And on the heels of this, we'll see Ray form a new group with Eddie Conan and Kidman. And they're calling themselves the filthy animals. Um, and, and sort of, a a weird spot here. I've wanted to ask you about since we announced this show, Lenny lane beats Ray Mysterio for the cruiserweight title on thunder on August 19th. What the fuck gingers need exposure too, bro. Yeah, Lenny, Lenny was a, was a real minority in WCW. He, he was the only redheaded character we had. And I think as such, I felt like I needed to go above and beyond, you know, in, in terms of my efforts to do what I could to have gingers represented fairly and equitably, you know, on nitro. And that, that was the logic behind that gingers as, <laughs> as, as the owner of a redheaded child. Uh, I, I don't know how I feel about you referring to my kid as a ginger. What the hell? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's, uh, are you suggesting that it's, what if, what if you had a, a, a real blonde kid and I, and I referred to that child as a toehead? Would that bother you? I don't even know what that is. You don't know what a toehead is? No, but I got one of them too. Google it. Yeah. Google it. Don't Google donkey show though, boys and girls. Hey, um, <laughs> Meltzer reports in September. Mysterio is not in the doghouse that Conan and Kidman are because he never specifically asked for his release like they did. He was going to leave if they left, but he never outright asked. Do you remember, you know, Conan and Kidman? This is right before you're, you're sent home uh, on September 9th, 1999, which we've covered in our archives. But do you remember Kidman and, and Conan coming to you and asking for a release? No. not I'm not saying they didn't. You asked me if I remembered it, and I don't. Well, while you're gone, of course, lots happened. Um, Ray's going to win the tag titles with Kidman. They beat Harlem Heat, which is pretty cool. Uh, Ray gets hurt in the match though. He's out until January of 2000. You're back in April of 2000. Um, when you're coming back in, you know, Ray's still wrestling with a bad knee. You're definitely going to try some new things. You know, we know that that Kidman is going to be doing some stuff with, uh, with Nash uh, and Hogan. In fact, uh, once upon a time, it felt like there was going to be, you know, the, with this whole, uh, new blood angle a real opportunity for some younger guys, but Mysterio is working hurt here to the point that by June Meltzer saying Ray's only at 70%. He can't risk anything spectacular. He returned five weeks early because he was asked to do what he could do. And because of the half pay situation, um, which I guess is insinuating that if you're home, you make half pay. Is that right? Yeah. Contracts have started to change a little bit. Um, by this time we had our new contracts had language in them that if, if you were hurt, uh, while you're sitting at home that, yeah, your, your pay went down to half. Um, on the August 14th, 2009 show, Ray and Hoovy beat the great mood on Vampiro to win the tag titles and they're stripped to the title after uh, Ernest Miller beat disco Inferno with the stipulation that if he pinned disco Mysterio and Guerrero would be stripped to the title. So this made total sense, of course. 
uh, around the same time, Hooventude was uh, arrested, taken off TV. So Ray and Kidman reformed the tag team. By that point, of course, you're not really around. There's been the whole situation with Bash at the Beach. Uh, that got ugly. But uh, Halloween Havoc 2000 would see Jindrak and O'Hare retain the tag titles over Mysterio and Kidman, Disco and Alex Wright. And then uh, Mysterio and Kidman would win a strange match at the Mayhem pay-per-view over Alex Wright and Chronic. Um, it all starts to sort of run together in WCW in this era. The Starcade of 2000 is Ron and Don Harris teaming with Jeff Jarrett to take on Rey Mysterio and Billy Kidman and Conan, which is like a combination street fight bunkhouse match. It's just as fakakta as you would say, as anything else that was on the show. Yo, Conrad's going Yiddish on Come us. On. I love it. Uh, Paul Heyman would be proud. You even said it correctly. You should hear. You should hear Pritchard try to use Yiddish. Well, it's comical. My father-in-law's Jewish. I did not know. No, not the one you know. Well, I don't care anyone. I yeah, don't, I don't yeah. Megan's mom is is uh, is Jewish, as is her husband. So I I did not know. Yeah, I've got a hilarious story about the first time I went to visit and said inappropriate things without knowing. I didn't know. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 a recovering Baptist. I I didn't know. Uh, the Super Brawl Revenge Pay Per View is Chavo Junior beating uh, Ray Mysterio Jr. to retain the Cruiserweight title. Again, Eric's not really there. Um, the big thing that I guess we get to see Ray do before the end of the uh, the whole deal here is Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo becoming the first Cruiserweight tag team, beating Mysterio and Billy Kidman. And then on the last Nitro, Ray and Kidman win those tag, win those tag titles. But again, these are the Cruiserweight tag titles. And fast forward, unbelievably... Uh, Ray doesn't go to the WWF right away. He works Mexico and Puerto Rico. He finally comes in in June of 2002. We know what tremendous success he's had there. Certainly going to be a hall of famer, you know, but his time in wrestling in America to me will always be, you know, something I think about when I think of WCW and the young Ray Mysterio, uh, before he was wrestling, you know, amongst the heavyweights, not that he's done anything wrong there. I'm just saying. I, I'm, I prefer younger or the Hulk Hogan I grew up on and I prefer the Rey Mysterio I grew up on. I think everybody in their fandom has like 10 years where they're at their most impressionable and man, Ray in 96, 97, just nothing like him. I agree. I agree. He really, he set the standard in so many different ways. And, you know, one of the things that we didn't touch on, I didn't touch on as much as I should have on this show, you know, we often talk about the athleticism and, you know, the phenomenal ring work and the psychology and the storytelling that Ray delivers in the ring. But Ray is one of in the ring, out of the ring, wherever, one of the most charismatic people in the wrestling industry today. I mean, there are, you know what it's like, Conrad, I'm sure when you interview people that, you know, come to work for you or, you know, uh, apply to work with you in, in your mortgage business, you know, there are certain people that when they walk through the door before they say a word, you just, you feel good about them. Either it's because of the way they carry themselves, the energy they have, how they look you in the eye, whatever it is, there's an aura or an energy or charisma, whatever you want to call it. Um, the, the it factor. Certain people just have it. They're born with it. It's it, it's a God-given gift. And Ray is one of those people. You know, when Ray walks into a room, forget about, you know, whether he's five five or five six or six two. 
um, or he weighs 220 pounds or he weighs 140 pounds. It doesn't matter. Ray's one of those people that when they walk into the room, they command your attention. Not because they're physically dominating, but because they just have that special vibe to them. And you sense it when they walk through a door. And Ray's one of those people. And you combine that, you know, that that it factor that he was born with, with that inc- the incredible athleticism uh, that he possesses, and you've got a superstar and, and a guy that definitely will 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 be a Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. And that's Ray Mysterio in a nutshell. We can't recommend him enough, and you know he really needs to be commended for you know changing and evolving. And you know I saw him up close for the first time in a long time at All In last year in Chicago, and I think you did too. And uh, he's just changed his whole body type. I mean, he's gotten himself in phenomenal shape. It's a different Ray than when he was maybe at his heaviest when he was world champ a decade ago for WWE. And uh, he's a different guy from you know who he debuted with in WCW. He's going to finish his WCW career, five-time cruiserweight champion, a three-time you know world tag team champion, a one-time cruiserweight tag team champion. Most of that on your watch, as you know, more titles than we could possibly list in the WWE very recently winning the United States championship at age 44 years old. Now his son's involved. He deserves a lot of credit for real. What do you think Ray Mysterio's legacy is going to be? Wow. I, 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 well, I think he sums it up when you, you know, when you talked about him a little earlier ago earlier, um, when you talked about, you know, his high flying athleticism and some of the great things that he did earlier in his career and, and prior to WCW, certainly within WCW, and obviously becoming almost a household name within the wrestling world uh, in WWE, I think he's going to be remembered for all of it. But probably most importantly, I think the innovative style that he brought to the industry that probably set the stone, set the stage for many of the things that we're we're seeing today. Uh, he was so innovative. He was so cutting edge in so many ways, and I think Ray. M- in many ways, more than anybody else, brought that lucha libre culture to a much higher uh, profile in the United States because he was so successful. And I think Ray should be credited for that as well. But I think he'll be known for, you know, his innovative ring presentation more than anything. Well, we hope we're known for entertaining you every single Monday right here on Westwood One. Tell a friend, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five star review if you think we've earned it. Next week, we're doing something kind of fun. We're going to talk about Bret Hart's WCW debut. We're doing it watch along style. It's going down on December 15th, 1997. Don't watch it. Watch it with us. And then the next week on Christmas Eve's Eve, we'll revisit when Medusa dumped the title in the trash on December 18th, 1995. So we're at the height of nitro and the very beginning of nitro and back to back weeks. And then we'll go to something very special on new year's Eve's Eve, December 30th. Starcade 1993. What a special show it was. Originally supposed to be Sid versus Vader. Now it's going to be the Nature Boy Ric Flair and Vader. We've got a big set of shows to finish out the year. What are you looking forward to most of those three, Eric? Oh, I, you know, I think it's time we revisit the Medusa belt in the trash can story because that story has been retold in ways that I think distort the actual truth. So we're going to, I'm really looking forward to digging into that one. Well, stay tuned this week and every week to 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.